When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So it was um, my partner at the time, my little brother, and me. And I live in a small town and everything had kind of closed down. He was like, do you just want to like drive around? We were like, yeah, we can just listen to music and talk. Like, that's fun. And he goes, hey, I have been to this cemetery that I don't think either of you have been to before. Do you want to go? And I'm like, why did you even ask me that? I'm always down to go to cemetery. To the naysayers who were like, it's a spooky environment. Number one, we weren't even at the cemetery yet. Number two, I've hung out in cemeteries my whole life. Like one was like right down the street from my house. I have vivid like memories of like riding my horse down through that cemetery and reading Pet Cemetery in the cemetery because I'm a nerd. So we're on this back road driving down there. I literally have my feet up on the dash and we are just chilling. All of a sudden I start just getting like waves of nauseousness. And I'm just like, so uncomfortable out of nowhere. In my head, I'm like, I've been here before. And I just like look back at my brother and I was like, is there a river around the corner up here? And he was like, yeah. And I said, okay, that's messed up. And for me, that was just kind of like a split second recon of like, I'm just going to say what I'm seeing and see if it matches with, because he's been here apparently a thousand times. So I start kind of freaking out and I'm like I don't want to go and they're both just like what, what what do you mean and I was like I've been here before I don't know how but I was like I don't I don't want to be here <laughs> not normal for me to freak out like that I'm usually for the most part like I freak out inside my head <laughs> not vocalizing it I couldn't kind of I was having a hard time convincing them like what's happening and I was like okay I was like so here's the thing I'm going to put my head in my lap I'm going to put my jacket over my head and I'm just going to start telling you what I'm seeing down the street. So I did that and I was able to tell them everything that was ahead, including a child's John Deere tractor that was out in the center of the street almost. Never been here before in my life. Like I don't. And so my brother just starts laughing and not laughing because it's funny. He's laughing because he's uncomfortable. <laughs> so we get to the cemetery. I'm still like, I'm not going. So I get out of the car and I just start walking back down the street. Because <laughs> I'm like, I just don't want to be anywhere near that place. So 
they both essentially, I feel like, just let's calm down the crazy person and just take her away from the area like she's begging for. <laughs> so, I still have, and again, I have no idea, like, why I was so upset. I have no idea why I had that moment where I could all of a sudden just see everything down the street without my eyes. Like, it was just, it was just almost like, kind of like before, like, one, in, one moment that information is not available, and the next it's right there for some reason. I'm Jim Perry. This is Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. This time, the dead can talk if you're able to listen. Next on Euphemet. Skin, grease, muscle, fat. 206 bones. What's left? The remains seen too by a skilled scalpel, saw, and shear of an autopsy technician. But what's more, what most can't see, what only some may be granted to experience, the life, the story, the spirit, somewhere else than on that steel table, but still connected to the body waiting to be heard. Jesse was an autopsy technician who found out a lot more about life than death while working at the morgue. It turns out she was primed for it from early on in life, receiving messages, perhaps induced by traumatic events. Both my paternal uncle and my paternal grandfather on my dad's side committed firearm-related suicide. And I actually knew what my mom was going to tell me on the phone the second before it rang. It was something that, like, I couldn't explain then, and I'd logged that away, like, somewhere deep in the recesses of my brain wrinkles, just being like, that was dumb. I don't have an explanation, but it doesn't necessarily matter. I just, I grew up Southern Baptist, so... In my, I'm no longer like that. I'm completely non-denominational, but I feel like a lot of my unwillingness and just fear, I think of the supernatural kind of comes from the fact that it gets demonized when you grow up in like these fundamental religions where it's just your spirituality is completely intertwined with institution. Making a break with those two things is very hard when you've been like brainwashed essentially since you were a kid. So I think for me, my atheism and my just utter like dismissal of everything supernatural all those years ago like stems from me wanting to be separate in every way from like an institutionalized religion it's something that i feel like i'm going to constantly be recovering from but it's just it very much damaged my ability to be able to relate to you know spiritual things supernatural things in a way that doesn't like break my brain (laughs) when I try to think about them. I think you can grow up being emotionally abused as a kid and it's not intentionally malicious. Both of my parents are like out of control empaths. There's like a dark side to empathy that I think a lot of people don't recognize in themselves. 
I describe empathy like on a spectrum. So over here you have like full-blown empath. That's a person that I feel like must just be disabled completely by the world around them. I don't understand how you wouldn't feel everything. And then over here you have psychopathy. That's somebody that has no ability to feel, express any type of emotional empathy, but they have a lot of cognitive empathy. So consequently, they love empathetic people because they make wonderful prey. And then all along that line between those two, you have these little dots where just the rest of us fall. So I think a lot of us are probably very high on that empath scale and either don't know it or don't know how to handle it. If you're somebody that is manipulated by energy very easily, for some reason, I've noticed that those people also have this uncanny ability to manipulate energy themselves and other people. And that's either a gift, that's something that you can use, like people are attracted to you for that reason. They're also going to be hurt by you for that same reason with whatever you that you're projecting. So my parents were very much like that. Um, I could not escape whatever it was that they were feeling. And it's not like they were like using actions necessarily to express it. It was just like radiating off them. So I grew up being unintentionally taught to read people too well. <laughs> so I feel like a lot of kids grew up like that and just didn't know that it was something that was going to like develop them into this person that's like very easily affected by like emotions and energy and all those kinds of things. Right after that, I just went through kind of like a metamorphosis in some sense of just being like, okay, so my whole life, like I've been like kind of emotionally abused, definitely spiritually abused. So I think my way of dealing with that was I'm just going to become the logic only robot. I'm just going to become alien intelligence <laughs> and I, that's how I'm going to live my life. And it was even worse. I was almost like Spock. I'm only doing that because I'm such a deep sensitive feeling person that I'm using all of that as like this, like encasing around me to protect me from feeling everything too much. Weirdly enough, when I started listening to the Visitations podcast with Daniel and Elijah, that's when I made the connection between my relationship to my love of horror and my upbringing and all of that and how deeply intertwined they were. Being an autopsy technician, like weirdly, I thought I could marry those two things. I thought I could be like, well, you're a horror nerd, so just go play with Boar all day and then be just like the pillar of logic everywhere you go. one incident I remember with um, a patient actually so she came in and there was like kind of like this overwhelming sense of something and she was very fussy very nitpicky <laughs> and uh, I got her intake as a new patient and then I went back out to start filling stuff out for the doctor doctor goes into Caesar doctor comes back and she was like you know she's really just like a fussy person and I said yeah her dad died and then I just immediately <laughs> kind of like in my head went, why did you just lie to the doctor? <laughs> that is not something that this woman had told me, had alluded to, anything like that. And then my doctor goes, yeah, that, how, did she tell you that? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> of course she did. <laughs> how would I have that information if she hadn't provided it to me? So, but just very weird things like that. 
And then I feel like once that door gets unlocked a little bit, it kind of makes you, like, in hindsight, look at things that have happened in your past. I try to be very careful about what I'm just putting out <laughs> to people, especially after those experiences when I felt like a cork got pulled and like all of my emotions were kind of just flying everywhere. Whereas before I was like a robot. Um, yeah, I had to learn how to walk everything back and just like pull it <laughs> back in the same way I started having to learn to like block people out when I need to. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For whatever reason, even in the beginning, when I first became an autopsy technician, I was very comfortable being around like deceased people. So it, that is never something that even once prior to this situation had ever made me feel anything. Um, for me, it's very science-based. I, I can't emphasize, I think, enough how much that just was a non-sequitur for me. It's fine. It doesn't bother me. The office that I worked for was really struggling with staffing issues. Originally, when I had started there, I was an intern and it was like slated with the possibility of me and the other autopsy technician that I was working with becoming employees. We were supposed to be just techs. So our job was to do filing when we weren't doing autopsy and then otherwise just run the morgue. And that involves cutting. I was very adept with the full examination. And this was forensic autopsy. <laughs> I was fascinated every day. Every single day was different. Even the days that were the same were still fun. <laughs> Again, just the staffing issues. I remember one day they asked me like, hey, we need you actually to, if you feel comfortable with it, to go out on scene and to help us collect, you know, a dead person. And they were kind of obviously just wanted me to get my feet wet everywhere. But it was genuinely something at this point that it was possibly going to be a thing where it's like they need me and the tech to actually do this sometimes, like as part of our job. And as long as there's nothing moral wrong with what you're asking me to do, like if you ask me to do something, I'm going to say yes and I'm going to go do it. This was not my first suicide. In fact, most of what I dealt with was were suicides. We show up to this person's house. I go into the garage. He's killed himself by hanging himself basically like from the rope that would go up with the garage door. It's not even been it's not even been 12 hours yet since he passed because rigor mortis takes 12 hours to set into the body. So he's still very um, his like limbs are still very malleable. The family wasn't there, thank God. Um, but what happened was I was already in there taking pictures and just trying to go about like the scene as we normally would proceed. A person in a UPS van starts coming down the driveway. It's kind of a long driveway. So we kind of scramble just to make sure that he doesn't see anything that wouldn't be something we would want him to see. So 
it was like an absolute clusterfuck. Like I got separated from my partner and what happened was they shut the door. So I'm standing alone in the dark next to a hanging body. When I do tell this story, sometimes like, of course, it's like skeptic, skeptics will say you were just in like a very spooky environment and that's kind of what facilitated it. And I was like, I literally cannot tell you how much that this was just a Tuesday for me. So that's one of the things that makes this moment so weird is because my the emotion I was feeling then was just calm, minorly irritated with the situation, wanting to proceed. And then all of a sudden, it's just like I, I start feeling what I've heard people like describe as a panic attack. Um, mine are all auditory. Like anytime I've ever had a panic attack, my ears ring and I kind of just have a hard time starting to come back to like hear what's happening in the vicinity. I've never instantly wanted to kill myself before. I don't really understand how that would happen. So at the same time, I'm experiencing all of just this like dread, despair, feeling like I'm like the house is burning and I need to jump type of feeling. So at the same time that's happening, all of the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I become just kind of like very primally, animally aware of something over here. And it's not necessarily the body because I'm right there. It's like in the corner of this very large garage. There's not a whole lot I can remember other than just like I was so upset and I just couldn't tell what the fuck was happening. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm panicking at this point. It's one of those things where it's like it felt like I was there for probably like an hour it was probably five minutes that I was in that room total while they got everything secure again. The garage door comes up. I'm trying to collect myself because it's like I'm trying to be who I'm supposed to be in this situation and it's not somebody freaking out because there's a dead body hanging next to them. Immediately, like, I, I'm taking pictures and I'm just like, I'm gonna go in the house and do recon like I'm supposed to with cases like this. As I'm walking in the house, I'm like, he's an alcoholic. I don't know how that information just ended up right in my head. Just, it was one minute, one minute it wasn't available, the next minute it was. And so I start digging through all of his things and that's absolutely what was happening. He's, he's an alcoholic, he was an AA. There was a journal that I found it would be hopeful one second and then just despair the next and like the feelings that i was feeling in that moment were what he was feeling in his writing and it was just nothing i've ever experienced before in my life and it's kind of hard to prove to somebody what you're feeling because ultimately that's only that's all it was right it was just like intense overwhelming feelings that weren't there one second and they're the next So I was photographing everything and again, like just collecting things that, and it was so weird because it was just like, I was trying to separate the two things too, because I felt like I knew what had happened, even though that's not how this works. Like that, it was so, it was so jarring. And I'm just like trying, like in my head, I could just picture 
like visually I'm just trying to like push these things apart because I'm so good at compartmentalizing and I was like why can't you do this right now and it's the first time I've ever had those like two sides of like you know my thought process like bleed together in a way that was just like very difficult for me to keep it separate um but I was able to and I got through that um and here's the thing like this is the one thing this was such a sensitive thing um I feel like I got latched onto by whatever that corner thing was. Originally, I just thought that the case had affected me in a certain way, and that's why I'm feeling so like this. But, like, I actually have persistent depressive disorder. Um, I got diagnosed with it when my uncle um, killed himself, and it's never felt like this ever. Like this is, this was like a very, very new thing for me to the point where I remember, so it had been two weeks after this guy. And I remember getting up one morning and I was like, I have to crawl to my truck because I can't, I'm on autopilot. I've been on autopilot for two weeks. I cannot live like this anymore. And I just remember I don't know. I don't want to describe it as um, like, oh, I was like throwing myself on the bed because that's not really what it was. I was just kind of like laying there, just like trying to collect myself. And I had my hands just kind of like right here on my chest. And I remember, I don't know why I said this, but I did. And I was like, you are hurting me, dude. Very shortly after I said that, things got lighter. And that's the only way I can describe it. It just very slowly felt like something was being like, you're carrying something heavy and somebody very slowly starts to like lift it. That's what that felt like. That's the best way I can possibly describe it. Now, in terms of what I personally think it was, I'd had a miscarriage recently, right before I started this entire journey. <laughs> and I felt like I was in a constant state of very just like tolerable grief at that point the grief had become like woven to so much of like who I was as a person it just exists there like a little flame that will never blow out it just gets a little dimmer <laughs> I felt like his was just like hey you're a grieving asshole let's just hang out for a little bit which was like, I don't, I'm not interested in that. You need to move on. <laughs> so that's honestly though, like that level of Klingon, it wasn't scary or malicious. It felt like a very annoying little brother that wants to hang out with you and your friends and won't leave you alone. It's the weirdest thing to describe it that way, but it, I don't at any point remember being like, oh, I'm, I'm scared right now. I was just in a constant state of like irritation from just this thing, this weight being there. Because I've experienced like depression with cases before because I used to autopsy children. I remember I took a leave of absence for like three days after my first um, child abuse case because it was really horrific and but that was something that was like that's a work-related trauma that like you can clearly identify and it makes sense. You know the suicide victim that just I have no point of reference for how it got like that and it just isn't like any other case or trauma-related work experience I'd ever had <laughs> before. So I was going to keep being an autopsy technician, and then I was going to go back to school because they, um, they definitely support you doing that if that's like 
what I wanted to be was like the county's basically forensic anthropologist. And a lot of that would involve, you can definitely be an autopsy technician as a forensic anthropologist, totally. But then a lot of what I wanted to do was like go searching for people that were missing and, you know, unaccounted for, for however many years. And when I started trying to do that, I remember I got really, really, really worked up over this case where it was a father that had, and this wasn't a case I was even involved in. It just affected me so profoundly. You have no ability to remove yourself from this and be effective in this position. I can't do this anymore. That was the thing when I realized I was like, just an absolute depressed soul and wreck over a case that I wasn't even involved with. Um, And of course, it was a very violent, horrific case. So anybody I think would be affected by hearing it, but the way that I took it was just like a weird thing to to have those feelings as somebody that's supposed to be in this profession being effective. I was like, I feel like this is a really good time for you to just admit to yourself that even though this is like a large part of you and it feels like it is, this is not something that you're going to be able to do and survive. (laughs) And especially at that time, I was so uncomfortable with talking about any of my feelings regarding this. Nobody knew. I was like becoming very, not estranged from my brother. He and I are best friends, but He and I were both, you know, the atheists of the Baptist family. (laughs) And it was like very scary for me to have those conversations with him because I know how much he was just like, no, like that's, these things aren't real. People think of grief as, everyone's afraid of grief. Like I don't, no one's afraid necessarily, I think, to, um, there's like underlying reasons why people are afraid of death and dying and all of it I feel like encompasses like the primary emotion of I don't want to lose somebody or if they're truly terrified of like the afterlife or whatever that obviously that's a huge reason for religion (laughs) but um, you know the fear of like the unknown period Um, and I think a lot of people we like to like tie up these little pretty stories and ribbons and be like you know your grief is going to become a beautiful part of you. And it's just kind of like, you don't really know that. Like everybody kind of handles things very differently. I have seen grief kill people (laughs) because they just did not have the psychological equipment to deal with it. Especially if it was like a partner that they were very close to. People do die of broken hearts. I've literally seen the evidence like in the heart muscles. It is a very powerful thing. And sometimes I'm just really curious as to like, if it overtakes somebody, like that like where does it go one of the things that i've kind of been toying with a lot lately just when i think about it too much or when i write about things like this because that's the only way i've been able to like kind of cope with a lot of this is just like a lot of writing even if it's like disjointed and thrown on like a random word document is i have no idea how strong grief is and I get really weirded out sometimes by the thought that like it can be so strong that it can just become its own entity. Thank you for listening to this edition of Yuva Met. 
This feature was edited and scored by John McEdward. Thank you to Jessie for her story. Jessie is a listener of Euphemet, and you can have your story featured too. Reach out at jim at euphemet.com. For everything Euphemet, including how you can subscribe to the show, links to our Patreon and social media, visit euphemet.com. And for even more, check out Night Drift. It's our weekly radio broadcast discussing Euphemet and hosting panels on topics at the intersection of society and strange. That's live Sundays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. This has been Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up.